ahead and dismiss the kids so you guys can go enjoy some Sunday school. And, uh, and before I get into my message, I just want to take a moment to uh, remind ourselves of our mission and vision here at Covenant Church. It's very simple. It's on our banners right here. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. And this stems from our belief in what the good news of Jesus Christ is. It's the gospel. It's that the God of the universe is restoring and redeeming human beings and all of creation back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. This drives every single thing that we do here at Covenant Church, from our children's ministry, our youth ministry, the sermons, men's women's ministry, everything that we do here stems from the fact that we believe that this is good news for all of creation. We also live out our mission and vision uh, to know Jesus and make him known. These four core practices of preaching the gospel, meaning every single Sunday you come here, you're going to hear a gospel-centered sermon that keeps the focus on Jesus Christ and him alone. And every single day of our lives, we seek to preach the gospel with everything that we are every day of the week. We also cultivate worship. We have great worship here, but worship isn't just music. It's our posture of giving everything that we have to Jesus Christ. And the spirit of cultivating worship leads us to create community with others, to find people that we can do life with so that we can live on mission together and have others come to know Jesus as well. So these are our four core practices. This is who we are at Covenant Church. This drives every single thing that we do. So uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Colossians called Alive in Christ. And, and just to catch everybody up, if you haven't been here the past few weeks, the book of Colossians is about finding our ultimate hope and joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, is concerned that the Colossians have begun wandering away from Christ and seeking their satisfaction in other things. And in chapter 1, Paul lifts Christ high above everything. He's the creator of the universe who reigns over all of it with love. And in chapter 2, he warns us not to fall away from Christ or be enticed with arguments that don't stem from Christ. And as Tim Butler preached last week, chapter 3 deals with putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And how do you do that? You center everything that you do onto the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, Paul continues his line of thought by telling the Colossians how to live together in Christ. But before we get into the message, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that we can be here together, that we can worship you, that we can serve you, that we can fellowship with one another. I ask that you'll open up your word to us this morning, that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our hands to the things that you want us to learn and understand today, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. So Colossians 3.18 begins with the doozy. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this is one of those verses that nobody's really fond of. If you're more of a progressive or a liberal kind of person, Paul sounds outdated. He sounds misogynistic. He sounds patriarchal. I've even heard uh, Paul referred to by some scholars, some scholars who are up here, as a woman hater. Now, if you're more conservative, chances are you'll have one of two responses to this verse. Either you'll say, well, you know, I really don't like that it's in there, but because Paul said it, 
we're going to have to obey it. Or maybe you're just like, yeah, I love this. There's freedom in this. I love it. This is God's word and it's good. But regardless of how this verse strikes you, there's always something more lurking beneath the surface that you need to be aware of, and that's context. And wherever you read Scripture, you need to pay attention not only to the context of the passage, like how it fits into Scripture, but also the historical background that it was written into. So remember in uh, verse 17, Paul says this. He says, "...and whatever you do, in word and deed..." Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And you need to keep that in mind, that Scripture is filled with these great transition verses that connect passages to one another. And in our passage, Paul connects this passage on putting out about, about putting on holiness and putting to death the way of the old self with how to live together in a way that honors Christ. Now, along with this, whenever you read Scripture, you have to understand the cultural background in which it was written as well. Because the more you understand the background of a passage, the more it it enriches your understanding of what God's trying to communicate to us today. So there was this guy named Aristotle. You guys heard of Aristotle? Hopefully you have. He was a Greek philosopher. And he came up with these household codes that were widely established in the ancient world. And to be a good Roman citizen meant that you were going to follow these Aristotelian rules of order. And Paul implicitly addresses this code in the passage, but he does so in a pretty subversive way, as we'll see. So he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and as is fitting to the Lord. In the ancient household codes, women were property. If you were a husband, you owned your wife, and she had to obey everything that you said. It was a very restrictive culture for women. And when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus pushes the cultural boundaries by allowing women to sit at his feet and learn from him and to be his disciples. And all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout Paul's letters, you see that women were a vital part of taking the gospel into the world. So when it comes to the roles of women in society and in the church, the New Testament is pretty revolutionary. And in this context, you have to read verse 18. Now, if you're a wife in the ancient Roman Empire, you have to obey everything that your husband says, and that means everything. Some husbands were benevolent. Others were abusive. The point is, is if you were a wife, you had to obey regardless of the cost. But Paul stops way short of that. And instead he uses the word submit. And in the Greek uh, Greek language, the term hypotasso is used for submit. And it means a willing submissiveness. So whereas where culture said that women had to be silent and obey their husband's commands, Paul says that wives must willingly submit themselves to their husbands. Now this gives women a voice. This de-objectifies women. And this is a radical departure from the way that the Roman Empire would have understand, would have understood the role of wives. And, you're re- and if you're reading this with ancient eyes, like the Colossians were, this is basically saying to the emperor that you don't care about the codes that he puts in place, and you don't care about being culturally irrelevant. But Paul, he also stops short 
of completely disregarding the role of women to submit to their husbands. And elsewhere, Paul gives some deeply spiritual rationale for this. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the the church. So Paul is transforming the way that wives would have understood their role in marriage. But he stops a little short of promoting a completely egalitarian vision for the way things are supposed to be. This is how wives demonstrate their submission to the lordship of Christ by submitting to their husbands. So for Paul to say this, this is completely revolutionary to ancient ears, but not as revolutionary as what he says next. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Remember, wives are objects in the eyes of the Romans. And husbands are completely autonomous rulers over their households. They have complete freedom to do whatever they want. But Paul says, nope. Instead, he tells husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. And I think when most preachers or teachers come to this verse, they almost always say, well, husbands have the bigger responsibility. When the time comes, for it, with, comes to it, they have to sacrifice their lives for their wives. And that's true. That's what you sign up for when you get married. But I think love in this passage is a little less romantic. What does it mean for a husband to love his wife every single day? Does it mean flowers? Does it mean chocolate? Does it mean the occasional bottle of perfume? Perhaps. But I think it means something a lot less romantic than we think it means. For a husband to love his wife means that he listens to her. He hears her voice. He sacrifices his own desires so that she can be happy and flourish to put her needs above his own. It means watching the kids when you'd rather watch the Super Bowl. I know that's where your guys' minds are at. And I think it sometimes means cooking dinner for your wife so that she can enjoy some rest and relaxation. And I think it sometimes means even putting your own career on hold so that your wife can pursue her dreams as well. And for a woman to submit to her husband means to submit to his love, not as tyranny and not as abuse. When we read this passage, we tend to read this with romantic eyes on, but Paul's getting at those daily acts of love that we sometimes like to gloss over. So when you put these two verses together, it's a command to humble yourself in the relationship as you seek to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for Paul to say this completely throws the cultural paradigm on its head. He completely disregards it. He says, husbands, your wives may need to submit to you, but you carry the responsibility to love her daily and to never speak as one who abuses that relationship. And there are other dimensions to marriage and scripture that we don't have time to get into. But the point is this, in a Christian marriage, we model everything that Christ has done for us. It says in Philippians 2, to esteem others as better than ourselves and to have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, the servant king. And when a, husband, when a wife submits to her husband's love and a husband sacrifices for his wife because he loves her, it's a powerful testimony of how the gospel transforms our relationships.
And Paul goes on to say this. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Yeah, okay. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul directly addresses the children. Now, this is another revolutionary act on his part, because in those days, children were just a notch below slaves and servants. They didn't have any value in society until they grew up. Now, Dio Chrysostom, who was an early church historian, he writes of a slave who describes the status of children in the ancient Roman Empire. He says this, Perhaps you don't know that in many states which have exceedingly good laws, fathers may even imprison or sell their sons. And they have a power even more terrible than any of these, for they actually are allowed to put their sons to death without any trial or even without any accusations at all against them. So in reality, this is a bad time to be born. But the fact that Paul acknowledges children and gives them commands means that in the kingdom of God, children are of value. They have a will. Paul doesn't say, tell the children to obey their parents. He says, he takes the opposite approach by addressing the children directly. The ancient household codes didn't even really talk about children. They'd simply tell the father to rule over his household well. And this means that for Paul, children have kingdom responsibility. Not because, because children have the responsibility of obeying their parents. Not because parents are the ultimate authority, because this is pleasing to God. And again, Paul is rebelling against the society of his day when he says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Dionysus of Halicarnassus, name your kid that, that's fantastic. He writes about this, about ancient Roman household codes. He says, The lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains and keep him at work in the fields, or to put him to death. And this even, though the son were engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates, and though he were celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. So Paul says, look, Father, you have the responsibility to be kind and just to your child, to treat your child as a human who deserves dignity. And again, you see that Paul is talking to parents, he's talking to men, and he's challenging them to exemplify Jesus Christ in all of their relationships. In other words, Paul is affirming that a father does have authority over his children, but it's an authority not to be thrown around in order to get your way. It's an authority that needs to be practiced with love, with care and encouragement, and respectful of a child's humanity. But there's also an evangelistic impulse here as well. Paul doesn't want children to become embittered or discouraged with the faith. And this is a tough subject because there are many in the church, many in this room, who raised their children to love the Lord, but when the time came, walked away from Him. You did everything right as a parent. You read your Bible. You prayed for them. You answered their questions. And yet when the time came, they said no to the faith that you hold so dearly. You can't blame yourself for that. 
There's no right formula for parenting other than expressing unconditional love, discipline when there needs to be, and sharing Christ in everything that you do. At some point, you need to leave the rest of the parenting up to God. So Paul addresses wives and husbands and fathers and children. Now he moves on to another controversial subject, and that's slaves. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Now, before I go on, I need to say that when you read the word slaves in this passage and in other New Testament passages, it causes some concern because Paul never really objects to slavery. But slavery in that world wasn't based on race at all. Slaves were either prisoners of war, they were felons that needed to do some community service. They were even um, uh, impoverished folks who just needed to work so they could provide for themselves. Some were highly educated and were in charge of the household. Some were illiterate. Oftentimes, children, like I said, were in charge of taking care of children and to teach them. And the wealthier you were, the more educated a slave you could purchase So when you hear the word slave when you're reading Scripture, think of it as more of a servant. And you could even make the case that you can view a slave as being an employee. So an alternative uh, alternative reading of this could be, employees, obey your earthly bosses in everything. Some of you may not like that. I'm sorry, that's what the Bible says. And he says, work as if you're working for the Lord, not for your immediate supervisor. Now, as I've mentioned before, Masters have a legal respons- don't, didn't have a, a legal responsibility to treat their slaves well. They could rule with an iron fist if they wanted to. There was no concept of slaves' rights back in those days. A slave had the responsibility of obeying his master in every single thing. And that's what Paul exhorts him to do. But he says, don't do it to get favor from your master. Do it because you want to do a good job for the Lord and honor him in every single thing that you do. I know many folks who hate their jobs for a variety of reasons. You work too much, you get paid too little, your boss is a joke, someone keeps stealing your sandwiches from the fridge, it happens. But Paul says, look, you're working for Jesus here. Have an eternal perspective because if you don't, You're going to die on the inside so easily. He exhorts his slaves, the servants in the household, to have an eternal perspective that they will get a reward in heaven for their obedience to Christ. And this is good advice for every single person in this room right now. The more you look at your present circumstance, the more you're prone to forget what Christ has done for you and what he's going to do for you when you die and when you enter into those gates of heaven and spend life with God in eternity. And Paul says of these slaves who may have been in abusive situations that anybody who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs they've done. He's talking to both slaves and he's talking to masters as well because our God is a just God. And whatever unfairness befalls you, he will make it right in this life 
or the next. And Paul ends his thought by giving another culturally subversive command. He says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And again, this is Paul completely reversing the order of things. He exhorts masters not to abuse their authority, but to treat those under them with fairness and with respect. And his rationale is simple, because your master in heaven is watching you. And masters could do whatever they wanted within legal reason. And what's worse is that the concept of justice was never applied to slaves. But Paul tells masters to forego their legal rights in favor of exemplifying a Christ-like spirit to their servants. And again, this sounds super basic to us. But these are harmless commands to the modern ears. But in the context in which Paul was writing, this is radical, life-changing stuff. And with regard to this whole passage, my friend Tim Gombus writes this. He says, while these things may sound like harmless commands to the modern ear, they are spoken in the context of absolute power of the patriarch over his family, which often was abused or used harshly in the ancient world. And again, the whole thrust of this passage is verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, before I go on, I want to make a few observations about this text, and I want to end with a challenge. Our life together in Christ brings life to one another. Like I said, these verses are pretty tame for us today, but when the Colossians were hearing them, and for the first time, they were completely revolutionary. And I think they can be revolutionary for us as well. What would it look like for each of us to put others first and only seek out the best for one another? What would it look like if each of us laid down our status in the world and embraced all of our statuses in Christ? Imagine how different your life would be if you took every word that Paul says seriously. I think it'd be very life-giving. You know why? Because following Christ is the only source of true life. And that's the thread that you read all throughout Scripture, but it's especially true in the book of Colossians. You trust in Christ. You follow Christ. You love Christ. You're going to have true life. That applies to the way that we live our lives together. Remember, Paul is writing into an oppressive culture that taught that husbands and fathers and masters had the authority to use and abuse those under them. And wives and children and servants just had to live with it. And yet here, he's telling us to embrace the exact opposite. This is the thread that you see all throughout Scripture. You have two ways to go. The way of life, which is found in Christ, or the way of death, which is found in the ways of the world. And that means that any hint of abuse in any of these relationships, whether they be spiritual, physical, emotional, has absolutely no place in the, bottom, in, the, in the body of Christ. And it's a shame that it sometimes is and has been. But to be a Christian is to love others wholeheartedly because Christ has done everything for you. And in Christ and in following Christ, there is life. And logically speaking, our life together in Christ brings us closer to him. 
Wives, you submit to your husbands because you're submitting to Christ in the same way he submitted himself to becoming human for our sake. Husbands, you sacrifice everything because Jesus did it for you. Children, you obey your parents because you love how obedient Jesus was unto death, even death on a cross. Fathers, don't be harsh with your children because your kids desperately need Jesus. And employees, do everything to honor your heavenly master. Bosses, treat your employees well because the king of the universe has his eye on you. When we follow these simple commands to submit, to love, and obey, we're submitting to loving and obeying Christ. Don't do these things because Paul tells you to. Do these things because you love Christ. And the law of love is what Paul calls the law of Christ, meaning whatever you do, you do out of love for him. And that includes how you relate to others especially. Treat others as you would treat Christ. I think it also means that our life together in Christ bears witness to the power of the gospel. So you look at the world, you see brokenness, you see abuse, you see hate, you see resentment, you see death. To live our lives together in a way that puts others above ourselves is to radically testify about how life-changing the gospel truly is. We're not seeking to live for anything or anyone other than Christ. And because of that, we pour out our lives for one another. And as a community, we need to point our marriages and all of our relationships with one another to Christ. Now, I'm going to say this too. You know it. Christian relationships are far from perfect. We still see the devastating effects of the fall in all of our relationships. But Christ is healing that. And it's up to us as a church to help our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to bring about healing and restoration and reconciliation. Because when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. How then will you live? To follow Christ is a call to die to yourself and to find your true life in Him and Him alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you think you follow Christ well. But your life doesn't look anything like his. Maybe you're here this morning and you follow Christ, but your marriage isn't healthy and you don't treat your kids well. This passage is a challenge for all of us. Sometimes when we read this passage, we get so hung up on what it means for a woman to submit to her husband that we sometimes neglect to realize that this is a call to lay down our lives for one another. And we do this. Because Christ has done it for us. He has laid down his life so that we can find true life. And that's what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate that the Son of God submitted himself to putting on a human form, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross, the worst way to die, all because of the Father's love for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to take communion. So when the band plays, I invite you to come to the front up here. Take a piece of bread, which represents his body that was broken for you. And dip it into into the cup, which represents his blood that was shed for you. And remember, all that Christ has done for you, is doing for you, will do for you. And maybe you need to repent of some sin in your life. Maybe you're not loving your husband or your wife or your kids or your employees or your employers that well. 
It's time to make a change out of love for him. Because to follow Christ means to lay all of our rights down because we love others. And so that we can have abundant life together. Will you stand with me as we pray?